Assalamu alaikum everyone, Adnan Rashid here at uh, Edmonton Airport. I'm heading to Toronto. I just want to request that every single one of you must subscribe to Lifehack podcast YouTube channel. A lot of amazing content is going to come up. A series on Ottomans is already there. My podcast, which I did with the brothers from Lifehack, is going to come up very soon. So watch this space and subscribe. Do not miss this opportunity to be exposed to amazing content on Islamic intellectual history and the history of Islamic dynasties and all of that. So Lifehack is your channel. Subscribe. Asalaamu Alaikum. No. Not word at all. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Life Hawk podcast. Today we have uh, a very special guest with us and also uh, an assistant guest as well. Alhamdulillah. So we have with us today uh, Sheikh Adnan Rashid, uh, which you know, if you uh, know how to use YouTube, then uh, you're very familiar with the Sheikh. Uh, especially, uh, I got so much feedback about his, uh, you know, lessons on history and, you know, how he goes into uh, bringing all these Islamic characters and events to life that we had to have Sheikh Adnan on the podcast. And then we also have with us uh, Brother Abu Ayyub uh, as well. And actually, prior to this podcast, uh, the conversations alone could have filmed another podcast. So we just naturally, organically uh, went into conversation headfirst. So everything you're going to see is really organic because it's just a continuation of, you know, three brothers getting together and discussing Islam, Islamic history, and just being passionate about it and just like going, like going with the flow. So this uh, podcast we have some goals and objectives, but what you're seeing is really untapped raw passion for Islam and Islamic history. And we have a special uh, guest uh, prop with us here <laughs> today. And uh, with this uh, actually uh, device, it's usually um, used, Sheikh, right, to look forward, yes. correct? That's and right. to go see something that's forward or something in the future that you're going to encounter. But you can't really do that unless you know where you came from in your history. Exactly. Correct? Yes. What do you think? Is it important for us to know uh, our Islamic history, where we came from, and what has your personal journey mm. been mm. Uh, in that discovery process? Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe history is absolutely crucial to, to be able to see the future mm. in a better light. Okay, otherwise you're blind if you don't have history, if you don't know your history. And if you don't know your history, you're completely blind to it, you're ignorant. And if you are ignorant, then you don't have anything to look up to, right? Mm. Uh, what we call the precedent, okay? The Quran sets a precedent of uh, the stories of the prophets. Allah tells us, we, us being Muslims, we have the Quran as our guide, okay? Mm. It's the word of Allah. Allah is the one who guides us through His word. And when we read the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we see patterns, we see messages, we see glimpses mm. into the past, right? And the reason why Allah uses the past is to teach us how mm. to better predict the future and uh, save your, yourselves from pitfalls, mm. okay? Pitfalls that people have already gone through or fallen into in the past. 
سو اللہ ٹھل It's the exact opposite. We, we look and we are enamored by people who are building bigger and better things. Mm. When there are, as you've mentioned, mm. there are countless examples. Mm. And even if we look at, for example, uh, a story from the Sira where Rasul he told the Sahaba when they had stopped in the dwellings of you know, Ad Thamud, uh, don't go there mm. unless you're going to go cry and reflect. Mm. Yes. You know what I mean? So why have we severed that connection of those lessons because there are, it's almost like countless examples. So you're giving like countless, countless examples mm. of historical lessons, yeah. uh, especially through an Islamic lens. So we mm. then we derive what are those actual lessons mm. and we are you know making those same mistakes today. Because look at even some of our own uh, countries. They, they sometimes say, oh, look at our country is advanced if it has the tallest building in the world. Yeah. Our, our countries are advanced if we have the most satellites put up into space. Absolutely. You know what I mean? This is where the problem is. People yeah. equate success, happiness with uh, technological advancement or uh, building of uh, machines or getting sophisticated uh, in creating things like, uh, you know, all these gadgets we use on a daily basis. People think this is success. Uh, as Muslims, do we have that same perspective? We don't. Mm. We do not. Okay, these are important things, no doubt. These are, we call them uh, blessings of Allah that come as a result of uh, progress made spiritually. Uh, in Islam, spiritual progress takes precedence over material progress. Mm. So when people start to judge the civilization, civilization of Islam by using arguments like, oh, we were the most advanced people in the world. Mm. We had the... Uh, the best scientists. We had Ar-Razi, we had Ibn al-Haytham, mm. we had Abu Qasim al-Dahravi, we had, uh, let's say, you know, uh, Ibn al-Nafis, 
Okay, we have Ibn Rushd, the philosopher. We had all these people, and therefore we uh, had a very successful civilization mm. because we were materialistically or materially rich. Okay, mm. we produced these observatories, we produced these scholars, we produced these uh, labs where people experimented. We we had universities, we had hospitals, we had paved roads, we had street lights in Cordoba in the 10th century. And I can go on and on and on and on talk about these things. Okay, From Spain to China, the Muslim civilization stretched from Al-Andalus all the way to China. So people think success meant uh, having all these things. No, absolutely not. Because mm. other civilizations also had this. Yes, okay? yes. The Romans had it. Mm. The Greeks had it. Look at the look at the Greek uh, monuments, Acropolis. If you go to Athens, you see the carving of these statues and all these. All, so these are mind-blowing things, right? Mm. So so Muslims are not unique in that sense. Of course, they took it to a very different uh, uh, magnitude, no doubt. Muslim expansion, Muslim advancement, uh, the Muslim civilization uh, reached a level of success, materialistically speaking. Uh, like never before, no other civilization had achieved that. Even the Romans mm. and the Greeks put, put together. Because the Muslims brought all this knowledge together in one place, or in few places, let's say Baghdad, Damascus, uh, Kerouan, and even in Central Asia, and then later on in, in, in Spain, Islamic Spain, Muslims experimented, they produced books there. They accumulated large libraries, okay? In fact, one of the caliphs in Spain, Hakam II, in the 10th century, he had the largest library in human history. SubhanAllah. Okay, when I say in human history, mm. I'm saying that with confidence, right? He had 400,000 volumes handwritten. Mm. Okay, there, was, there were no printing presses at the time. Mm. Hakim II was so fond of books uh, that he had agents working for him on, on a full-time basis, collecting books for him yeah. from global libraries. He was yeah. in Spain, in Cordoba, ruling from Cordoba, okay? and he had over uh, 400,000 books. 40 volumes alone documented the catalog. So, Think about that, right? So uh, does, does that this mean- also reflect, you know, uh, uh, as you're speaking, hmm. I almost feel, isn't this almost like an evidence for the truth that Islam comes with? Because if we look at the Sahaba, when they brought Islam to people, they didn't say, look at our great, huge, massive civilization and you can be like us uh, materially if you become Muslim. You know what I mean? And the same thing today as Muslims live in minority, it's like, are people becoming Muslim in such huge numbers in Western countries because they say, oh, your, your countries are so advanced civilization-wise. They're saying no because of the message that you're bringing. It is not the end. Yes. Okay, material progress, material success, technology, advancement, in, uh, in creating towns, let's say, or town planning or building roads and hospitals. Mm. These things are important. These are important outcomes of uh, any successful civilization. But in Islam, uh, what comes before this success is the spiritual uh, mm. development of humans, character building, yes, ca making better humans, right? Uh, you had Romans, let's say, mm. very powerful, Mm. Very powerful, but were they good human beings? Mm. They were Greeks, very powerful, very intelligent, highly learned. Mm. Uh, they carved monu monuments, but were they moral characters? Mm. These are very important questions. Mm. We had uh, Mongols, 
They're immensely powerful. Okay, very powerful. They carved a larger empire than the Muslims had mm. because they beat the Muslims in terms of land, uh, land acquisition, right? Uh, but were they moral human beings? Mm. So where does Islam come into this? Islam claims superiority uh, based upon moral teachings, mm. moral values. So with Islam came uh, upright moral human beings Mm. who gave the world this civilization we just discussed. So yes. when you have libraries, when you have hospitals, paved roads, street lights, uh, successful societies functioning uh, in an organized fashion, uh, all of this, if it, if it accompanies moral human beings or moral human beings are running all this, mm. then it is a truly successful civilization. This is a point uh, Iqbal uh, very um, eloquently mm. highlighted in his poetry. He said, Judaho Deen se to jati hai Changezi in the Urdu language, and I will translate. Basically, it means that when you separate uh, Deen, your moral values, your ethical values mm. from your politics, then what is what, what remains is Genghis Khan. Mm. Okay? So Genghis Khan did a lot of politics. He conquered lands, he lands, he conquered territories, his, his children did. Uh, they conquered China, parts of China, they conquered parts of Central Asia, they went as far as Russia, uh, even as far as Poland. They were invading Lahore mm. in, in uh, the subcontinent, Indian subcontinent. They went very far, mm. but they were brutal. They mm. killed a lot of people, they killed animals, humans, they cut trees, they destroyed civilizations, mm. right? So they were politically successful, politically successful. Mm. I use the word successful in inverted commas because mm. to some people that's expansion on a grand scale and then what came from it, the, the city of Korakoram, mm. the capital. But were they moral people, the Mongols, right? Mm. Because they had no moral values backing their military expansion, they themselves got conquered by Islam. Mm. So this is a phenomenon in mm. our history where Mongols came conquering the lands of Islam mm. from northern China all the way up to Syria where they were checked by the Mamluks of Egypt, right? And in India they were stopped by the Delhi Sultanate Sultans who fought them for over a century to keep them away from India. Mm. And this is, this is another side point I would like to mention that, that Indians don't know the favors Muslim Sultans have done to the subcontinent. Right? Mm. If the Muslim sultans didn't stand in the way of the Mongols, India would have been wiped out completely. Mm, okay, like, like what happened in Persia, yes. what happened in Central Asia, what happened uh, in land as far as Syria, right? Mongols went conquering, massacring, killing, uh, basically decimating anything that came through. Cities that were destroyed during the Mongol invasions never came back up. Mm. Okay? Uh, there were many cities that were destroyed for, forever. So the point I'm making is all of this military expansion and success like the Romans did, like the British Empire did later on, mm. uh, like what, what the Western civilization is doing today mm. in uh, many ways through, uh, through uh, financial institutions, right? Mm. Unfair policies imposed upon the world. All of this is going to fail like it did in the past mm. because there are no moral values behind mm. this, right? There is no... There is no greater purpose behind all of this. With Islam, it was different. Mm. The reason why Muslims became successful wasn't because they were uh, some, uh, you know, great thinkers or great 
general, they were successful because of the values they brought with them. Mm. Okay, people were happier under them. Even though people didn't accept Islam, they became happier. The Jewish people, they lived under the protection of Islam for over a thousand years and they created the golden age. Likewise, Christians who were living within the domain of Islam, they were very successful. Uh, they were flourishing in places like Spain, even in the Middle East, the largest uh, or the oldest, I would uh, uh, rather, the oldest Christian civilization or Christian populations in the world were living in the Muslim lands. Mm. To this day, the oldest Christian community in the world is in Egypt. One of the oldest, I, I would say, the Coptic Christians, they're still there, okay? So, although there have been mass conversions mm. within the Coptic uh, community mm. as well. So, the bottom line is, success doesn't necessarily mean uh, having more advanced technology and all that, uh, having top-of-the-range rockets and space machines and astronauts working in uh, an institution like NASA. Could we say the, cur the current paradigm hmm. that people buy into is that to be successful materially, you do it in spite of a moral foundation. Whereas the Islamic approach mm. is to be successful materially is a result of, yes. you know, morality, Spiritual. Islam, Iman, and Ihsan. Yeah, being because, happier be, as a person. Be, because, for example, you mentioned you have, say, great infrastructure, nice roads, facilities, hospitals, and, and so forth. So a person who comes at it from an amoral perspective, like, okay, we want to achieve this for our society because that's going to make my citizens happy, that's going to you know, improve my own standing, whatever, uh, and it's to show off to the world, look how bright and powerful and everything that we are. So this is you know, in spite of, and if you have to do amoral things, say in other countries, to you know, gar garnish the resources and to you know, extract the resources mm -hmm. to make that happen, you're going to do it. Whereas from Islam, uh, it's a result of our, your, our Islam, our Iman and Ahsan, because if I'm a ruler mm. and I say, listen, Islam tells me to do things with Ahsan. Mm. I can't have, as you know, mm. Umar bin al-Khattab used to think about, mm. is there some donkey mm. you know, getting tripped up in a road that, because of me? Mm. I need to pave this because it's an amana. Yes. So, it's like I'm doing these material things, providing hospitals, providing yeah. clothing, providing things, as a result of my morality, Absolutely. not in spite of my morali Absolutely. Uh, morality. Absolutely, 100%. So look, the outcome of uh, uh, what we call uh, the Western Enlightenment period, okay, in the 18th century, um, why is it called the Enlightenment? Basically, the Enlightenment from uh, the Christian past, okay? The Christian past in Western history was seen as a period of darkness mm. by these Enlightenment philosophers. So because they freed themselves from that past and they could see a better future by speculating as humans uh, or uh, postulating a better future, okay, through their own philosophies, uh, they called it the Enlightenment, right? The Enlightenment century or the Enlightenment period, okay? Despite the fact that all these atrocities are still going on, slave trade, reached its peak in the 18th century, mm. which is being burnt alive in Europe as we uh, are going through in this enlightenment, right? But one of the outcomes was hedonism. Yes. Okay, mm. pursuit of pleasure. How is the question? Pursuit of pleasure by following material uh, desires, 
right? Making yourself materialistically powerful, right? That's how you attain pleasure. In Islam, it is very different. It is pursuit of happiness by becoming a moral person, okay? Through worshiping Allah. So in Islam, the focus is Allah. Why? Because Allah wants us to be moral people. And when we become moral people, by extension, as a consequence, we will become happier. Yes. Like the Quran states. And that happiness definitely constitutes material advancement. Okay. Allah doesn't want us to be blind to mm. paved roads, uh, properly functioning hospitals and universities. It's, and it's like, Sheikh, for example, like yeah. if, you, if in your programming, it's like, I'm going to work out regularly, I'm going to eat well or whatever. Mm. A natural consequence of that is you're going to be more resistant to disease. Yes. Whereas if you're like, I just want to avoid disease, mm. then maybe you're going to be heavily reliant on medications mm. and just mm. treating it mm. every single time. Mm. But what you're saying is uh, an Islamic approach, mm. a natural con- consequence of that mm. is you will have mm. various degrees of material success, mm. but that's a natural consequence of, and mm. it's not an absolute criteria of what true success is. Yes, absolutely. And how do we know that? We know that historically, that in the Muslim history, we, we didn't have a utopia, we didn't have perfection, because yes. humans are uh, working on this system. Mm. Right? Humans make mistakes. Humans are prone to error. They are, suscept- uh, they are susceptible to desires, uh, influences from elsewhere, from other civilizations or other systems, right? So humans are very imperfect by nature, right? So when humans are trying to work out or work with a perfect system, they will definitely make mistakes. But the, because, the, because the system is so powerful, it will definitely produce some good results, right? So this is why in Islamic history, we have such, uh, so few, uh, few examples of, uh, few, I would say fewer examples of mass murder, massacres or genocides, mm-hmm. right? While on the other hand, when you look at other human histories or histories of other human groups or other civilizations, you see that happening across the board, right? Very even recently, to this day, yes. Even to this day, okay? And this is an outcome of depression. I believe a happy person cannot commit a genocide. Mm. A, a, a person who is content uh, within his soul, or he has a content soul, will not commit atrocities like that. Mm. So even though in their pursuit of happiness, or pursuit of pleasure rather, hedonism, mm. uh, when, uh, these civilizations or these people achieved their pleasure mm. by attaining power and strength, they ended up committing atrocities, okay? So, so when hedonism uh, became dominant as a philosophy in the Western world, uh, what came about was colonialism. Mm. And with colonialism came uh, suppression, oppression, tyranny against the natives of every single land that was colonized, okay? Mm. So you have you have Australia, you have India, you have South America, North America, you have uh, all over the world, where, wherever colonial powers went, uh, you know what they did, right? I mean, that's another podcast. Yes. We, can, you know, we can discuss that at another point. Yeah. So the point I'm making is, this happened because the philosophy driving their, their systems and their advancement wasn't a moral philosophy, mm. okay? Mm. Uh, on the other hand, despite all the imperfections of the Muslim civilization, we didn't have these issues. Mm. We didn't have these problems. We didn't commit genocides against the Jewish people or the Christian people. Of course, in wars, when people we people rebel or when wars kick off, atrocities do take place. But after 
there is peace, how people flourish, how people feel living with the civilization is very important, mm. right? It's very important. You know, you know what I gather from what you've just mentioned? Is that the magnificence of Islamic history seems to be nestled within um, not just pragmatics of learning lessons to mm. apply them for technolo technological development, mm. innovation, mm. you know, um, products and so on and so forth. Yes, you can drive those things. But what you were get gathering is that, or getting at is that there is a psycho-spiritual treasure mm. in Islamic history. Absolutely. If we can tap into that, mm. perhaps we can not just be a better ummah pragmatically, mm. but we will be a happier ummah, a more fulfilled ummah, an ummah that can be more connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, know its purpose. Because as you just described, if you pursue, uh, pursue technology, your career, studies, without that connection, that spiritual, psycho-spiritual connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you are actually building your own shackles. Your you're, own destruction. You're yes. building your own prison and you're putting yourself in that prison. Exactly. And you, what you just described in terms of the Mongols, mm. that's what they did. Mm. They built a magnificent prison mm. for them to live in mm. and die in and mm. be destroyed in. Yes, right. And it seems that this is our modern life. Mm. We're going through the process of going to school mm. for no reason. Mm. Just, okay, you go to school because you need a degree. Mm. Okay, you get a degree because you need a job. Mm. You need a job because you need to get married. You need to get married because you need to have kids. Mm. You need to have kids so then you have somebody who can take care of you. So what happens to the die. human being in all of this? What, hap what happens to the, the tranquility of the heart? Okay, where does that go? Mm. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses this point in a very powerful verse in the Quran. A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ala bi dhikrillah tatma'innul qulub. Ala bi dhikrillah tatma'innul qulub. Is it not in the remembrance of Allah hearts find tranquility? So hearts can only become tranquil when they remember Allah, when they are Allah conscious, Allah is on their minds all the time. And because Allah is on the mind, uh, whatever progress they make will be a moral progress. Okay, Because Allah is the one who is commanding us to be merciful, to be compassionate, to be just, to be truthful, to be upright, to be, um, to be fair with people. Uh, don't uh, brutalize people. Don't treat them unfairly, even if you dislike them. The Quran says in chapter uh, 4, verse 135 and uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, two verses in the Quran that give us uh, this concept of justice, okay? And uh, this is something I want to talk about as well, that uh, Islamically speaking, our civilization is built of four uh, uh, events. I call, I call them the golden chain of events, okay? It's a chain of events mm -hmm. that occurred throughout the Muslim history. It may be a simplistic view of our history, but it, it, is, it, it is a correct one in my opinion. Okay, uh, this basically chain has four locks, right? The first lock or the first event in our history is the revelation of the Quran or the emergence of the Quran, let's say, in the seventh century, right? That emergence of the Quran from the seventh century gave rise to what we call the Islamic concept of justice, okay? From that Islamic concept of justice came progress, okay? Uh, so because you are a moral people, you are a just people, you are a fair people, people ruled by your system are happier. And because of that happiness, they made progress. There is no progress without peace. Okay, mm. that never happens. In human history, yes. uh, you will never make progress without peace. And peace depends on justice. So if there's no justice, there will, no, will never be peace, right? So from justice comes peace, and from peace com uh, comes progress. So these are four uh, events, the revelation of the Quran, speaking uh, as a Muslim, right? 
then justice that came from the Quran or the teachings of the Quran. Then came peace from that justice, uh, what we call aman or aman, okay? And then came progress. So we didn't jump from the Quran all the way to progress. Mm. Okay, well, I can't say that the street lights in Cordoba um, basically uh, are found in the Quran. The, Allah does not command us to go and build street lights and build universities and libraries of a grand scale in Cordoba, right? Mm. Allah didn't tell us that to, uh, you know, in the Quran. What Allah did was He gave us parameters, He gave us uh, the map, okay, He gave us the, the instructions to achieve that, okay? That was a natural outcome of what the Muslims had achieved before that outcome. And before that outcome comes peace that was facilitated by the justice Muslims um, offered to the world and that justice came directly from the Quran. So this mm. is the golden chain of events, okay? And of course, there's no perfection. There are periods of uh, upheavals. There are periods of turmoil. There were wars. Uh, but generally speaking, for over a thousand years, Muslims created a very vibrant, uh, a very powerful civilization that facilitated peace and justice and progress for a lot of people. And we have the roadmap, right? Because yeah. we have the sunnah mm-hmm. of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and we saw how he won over the hearts not with brutality and authority, you know, uh, exercising authority, mm. but think about the, his, his greatest opponents mm. during the time of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, mm. how he dealt with them and what was the consequence and then we were talking about, um, you know, uh, the Mo- Mongol Empire. Yeah. How did they deal with their enemies? Hmm. And how did they deal with opposition? They didn't believe and in mercy. Exactly. They didn't believe and in what compassion. was the consequence? Hmm. Yes, they had a, a material gain for a certain period of time. Yeah. But if we look at the effect today, do people say we want to follow the life and the path and the example in the history of the Mongols, but till to the, this day, people look at the life of Rasul Sallallahu and he turned hearts, uh, number one enemies uh, towards Each loving other. him. Yeah. Then and today, people who hated mm. Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu when they read his life, they become Muslim. Absolutely. And even those uh, staunchest of staunchest of enemies, uh, Aws and Khazraj, yes. two tribes in Medina, they were loggerheads against each other. You know, yes. they were they were. They were. They recently fought a war called uh, Buath, the the famous war or battle of Buath, where many people were killed from both sides, and uh, they, they they were inhabitants inhabitants of the same vicinity. They went to the Prophet to arbitrate between them, and when the Prophet came to Medina, these very staunch enemies became uh, the strongest of friends. You know, they, they, their hearts were so united that. Together they protected the Prophet You know, they joined the, I mean, some people tried to cause that rift between them again after they became Muslim, mm. but they were unsuccessful because of the love and the compassion the Prophet had instilled within their minds. Mm. Okay, they became different people. They were not thinking uh, with their passions anymore, like tribal passions or passions driven by tribalism, right? Mm. Uh, they were thinking more about Allah now. They were thinking of a bigger purpose in life. Okay, so the Prophet ﷺ, he made these enemies into friends, into brothers rather. They became brothers. People from Aws and Khazraj, they became brothers. They, and they stood shoulder, um, shoulder by shoulder or shoulder to shoulder to protect the Prophet ﷺ in, 
in many, many uh, battles. In fact, they gave their lives protecting the Prophet. The Battle of Uhud is an example when the Prophet was attacked by his own people. Mm. His own people, the Qurayshis, attacked him mm. and they are, uh, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to destroy the Prophet. And who is standing in the way? Who is shielding the Prophet? The Ansar. The Ansar. Who are the mm. Ansar? A collection of Aus and Khazraj, mm. people from Aus and Khazraj. Standing shoulder to shoulder as a shield in front of the Prophet in the Battle of Ahud. Seven Sahaba. Mm. When the Prophet was cornered uh, after Jabal Ramat was uh, basically uh, abandoned by those archers appointed by the I mean, those who know the history, they know exactly what I'm talking about. The Prophet had appointed 50 archers on a small hill to protect the back of the Muslims in this battle. And when the first phase of the battle was won, these 40 archers, uh, out of 50, 40 archers, they left the spot and they came to collect the booty of war, right? Mm. And only 10 remained. And taking advantage of that, Khalid bin Walid came around, radiallahu anh, who became a Muslim later on. He came around mm. and he attacked the, uh, the Muslims from behind and the fortunes were turned. And the Prophet's own life was threatened. He himself was attacked. The, the, Qureshis, uh, the, the, the Qureshis had realized that the Prophet is in this, this place, so they attacked that spot. And there were nine companion, companions of the Prophet at the, at the time. Seven of them uh, uh, gave their lives protecting the Prophet, and two remained alive, having been severely injured. Those seven who gave their lives were all Ansar, and those two who remained alive were from the Muhajireen. They were also Qureshi. Okay. Uh, uh, one, one of them was Ubaidullah, Talha bin Ubaidullah, And the other one was Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas. Seven companions of the Prophet who died protecting him, right? Gave their lives mm. but didn't allow the Prophet to be touched. Mm. Um, although he was injured later on, um, all of them were Ansar. Hence, the hadith of the Prophet Ayatul Iman, Hubbul Ansar. Ayatul Nifaq, Bughdul Ansar. The sign of Iman is to love the Ansar and the sign of hypocrisy is to hate them. Why? Because they paid such a good... And the, the, the reason why I'm telling you this story is, look, at, look how Islam transformed these people mm. from being uh, staunch enemies to each other. Now they are united in one cause. So what you're saying is that it seems that the transformation mm. that they experienced through the deen, historically speaking, mm. is you know, something that just opened up their hearts and their minds to re the true reality. Yes. And that is that, you know, if we don't have the guidance of Islam with us, mm. what we end up doing is being a slave to everything that we create and to our own exactly. selves. Exactly. But if we have Islam and we have the deen and we can even learn from our Islamic history to see how this was done by the Sahaba and by our righteous luminaries uh, throughout history, then it can emancipate us. Yes. And actually true by being in the most honored state, the most honored achievement you can get is to be a slave of the one who created everything that we know in reality. That's right. And everything that we don't know. But beyond that, it seems that this actually gives you true mastery over your own self and anything that you create, anything that these products that we have around us, like, you know, we have an iPhone with us, hmm. but most people, the I, they don't possess the iPhone. The iPhone possesses them. That's right. And it seems that subhanAllah, by unlocking this connection to Islamic history, which can give us a more closer, meaningful connection to our deen, mm. it seems that this is a way for us to be emancipated from this cycle 
of domination that's self-inflicted hmm. from the dunya that hmm. we allow, we invite. Or, or, or being mesmerized or being uh, affected by influences, foreign influences that themselves are not uh, very successful uh, when we look at the grand scheme of things, right? But the beautiful uh, thing is that we're not, we're not isolating ourselves from yeah. the tools. Absolutely. We're learning to not allow the tools yeah. to be our masters. Exactly. We are the masters over these tools. That's right. And Islam kind of keeps us mm. from falling into that trap. That's right. And so I almost wonder if you, you know, Ustad Adnan, if you were, you know, a fisherman, okay, mm. at a, at a, and, and you're, uh, you have this shop and a big, huge lake is behind you, mm. and we come to visit you, and that lake happens to be the history of Islam, mm. okay, and we're going to go fishing. Mm. So it seems that we've been just catching the same fish every time where we're just looking at, okay, what did Islamic history tell us about like, you know, inventions and things like that. Mm. What are the fish mm. that we haven't caught yet as a Muslim ummah? What are we missing? Absolutely amazing. That's, that's a very good question and an important question. I think our wisdom, um, our literature, okay, our texts on morality, for example, akhlaq, mm. okay, was a, a specific genre within the civilization of Islam. There were books written by scholars of Islam on manners, mm. how to conduct yourselves, right? Uh, Allah tells us in the Quran, inna kala ala azim. The Prophet was uh, sent upon the best of manners. What does that mean, right? If he had the best of manners, how do we learn about his manners, right? We study him and then study those books written by scholars later on to highlight those manners in a more, um, how can I put it, detailed, uh, uh, way, so there are genres like uh, akhlaq, adab, literature, wisdom, poetry. Let's say, okay, uh, we have neglected all of that. We are we are so affected by Western philosophies. Okay, we know all Western philosophers, thinkers, poets. Amazing, no problem. Read them. There is a time to read them as well, and there is a lot of wisdom they have shared. There is a lot of good in that as well. We as Muslims, we are not bigots. Okay, we don't reject. Uh, we don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. We don't believe in that kind of stuff, right? Uh, in fact, the principle, al-hikmatu mu'min, okay, that principle is very much an Islamic principle that wisdom is the lost property of a believer. You take it from wherever you find it, right? So we study philosophers, thinkers from other civilizations, no problem. But before we do that, we need to study our own scholars, mm. our own lost literature. It's not lost actually, it's there. Mm. It's lying, it's, it's gathering dust, okay? Mm. It's lying around. We're not, we're not discovering it. We're not even aware of it that it's there, right? So I'm talking about our poets. I'm talking about our thinkers, our intellectuals, okay? People who propose solutions to problems. We need thinkers today. We need thinkers today. I mean, we were having this conversation earlier that we have too many doctors, too many engineers, too many accountants, too many lawyers, because people are thinking of their stomachs. Mm. People are driven by uh, their desire to... The pragmatics. To, yeah, exactly, the pragmatics, <laughs> or their, their desire to succeed, succeed in this life. And what is success to them? A good job, a good vehicle, a car, uh, okay? And a good house, let's say, a big spacious house with a swimming pool in it. Right? Uh, the question is, let's say you've achieved all of that, then what have you really achieved in life? Mm. Okay, you know, what's, so sp what's so special? And the necessity for us, what do we need as humans? What do we, need? we need a limited amount of uh, 
food, a limited amount of clothing, a limited amount of space to live in, right? All of us, we can achieve that if we work hard enough. That's not the end. That's not the, the purpose of our lives. The purpose of our lives is to make this world a better place, mm. okay, by worshipping Allah, right? So I believe Muslims are the only hope left for uh, humanity, mm. right? Because all other systems have been tried, tested, they are failing, mm. okay? If material success was to bring happiness, Sweden would have been the happiest country in the world. <laughs> Japanese people wouldn't be committing suicides in jungles, mm -hmm. in forests. I mean, there yeah. is a suicide forest in Japan where yeah. people, uh, you know, people commit suicide. Uh, then we have places like Norway. We have uh, uh, the Western civilization in general. I mean, look at the, the, the problems we find therein. So all of these problems are there because people feel empty. Their souls are empty. Mm. They're not connected to the creator. They have lost the purpose of life, mm. right? So you know, all I'm of this material success is not bringing happiness people are looking for. I'm excited mm. to ask you this question. Mm. Because Marshall Tawakla, you're an expert in history. And so I want to ask you, you know, out of your own almost tadabbar of Islamic history, what are some of the things that you pull out in terms mm. of uh, that are almost truths mm. that are apparent if you kind of look at the whole thing as a mm. whole mm. and that can benefit us in unlocking our own selves, our own path forward in mm. our daily life today. One thing, or maybe I'll give you some time to think about it, is just to share one thing that I was just contemplating myself recently and just thinking that, you know, subhanAllah, you look at human psychology and what we value, mm. right? If I were to tell you that, you know, this telescope actually went to the moon and back, mm. would you value it more? Um, I don't know, it depends. It went, it went on, Neil Armstrong took this back there, yeah. and it got moon because dusted on Because of the provenance, yes, yeah. absolutely. And moon dusted on it and it came back. Yes. You'd value it more, yeah, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, if I were to tell yeah. you that this telescope, mm well actually predates even the Prophet it's 10,000 years old. Mm. Would mm. you value it more? Yes. You'd value it more. So Absolutely. You're talking about, you're saying that the further distance it is, mm. and the older it is, mm. the more you value it, correct? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Now, the Quran, mm. where did it come from? Mm. How far of a distance did it come from? It came from Allah. The furthest distance yes. in terms of like the Loha Mahfud, like something that's that right. we, can, we can't transpire or think about the distance. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Or even use those terms, mm. right? And how old is it? It has, it is Allah's knowledge. Mafud, and it yeah, was recorded yeah, in Mafud, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, beyond yeah. even our time scale or what we conceive of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So subhanAllah, in terms of value, if we even connect with what's in our fitra, mm. the, uh, the thing that we should be valuing the most in our homes today, mm. out of every object that we have, mm. Should be the Quran, just from a historical Absolutely. lens. Absolutely, mm. and that's 100%. just doing tadabbur, like you're yeah. just thinking of it, mm. like be, like you know, thinking of it deep, deeper. Mm. Mm. And so, I was, I was excited to hear, like you know, some of your thoughts. I know it would be very difficult to condense and put yeah, some of these yeah. things into, mm. especially mm. I'm putting you on the spot. Mm. But is there anything that you can kind of share with you, uh, you know, any reflections or anything that you think that would be very ex you know, they're almost like wonder moments. Like epiphanies. Mm. Epiphanies, you know? Yeah. You know? From the history of Islam? Yeah, yeah, like things that you're just... Or even, you can do history in general, or like yeah. whatever you think would be, kind of give us a more insight into understanding. When you spend time mm. doing this, mm. and if the brothers and sisters and myself listening to this, spend time learning about Islamic history, mm. there is something there. Mm. There is a knowledge there that yeah. cannot be extracted from you know, your daily life. One, one of the lessons I have learned, one of the most powerful lessons I have learned from my study of history is that 
kindness never dies mm. an act of kindness will never perish it will live whether humanity survives or not uh, that act will live on mm. people will remember it and people will take lessons from it and they will cherish it they will celebrate it i can give you some examples mm. uh, for example one of the the greatest things uh, we know about sultan salahuddin ayubi is that he recovered al quds for the muslims from the crusaders right uh, but uh, very few people know him as a person as a human being they know him as a general they know him as a king they know his history they know his legacy generally speaking people muslims are aware what, of what he did but what was he like as a human being okay his acts of kindness are documented and they will never be forgotten that's why he was so special as a human being for example a crusader woman came uh, to him uh, requesting to find her daughter because she uh, her daughter was kidnapped from the crusader camp she went to her people long story short uh, her people said the muslim king is a merciful man even they testified to the fact and this is happening on the battlefield when the lines are drawn they are on the other side and the muslims are are the other, uh, from from the other side right and they are telling one of the women that he is a merciful man only he can help you okay mm. so she crosses the lines she from her lines from her side she comes to the muslim side and then she wants to speak to the sultan she's brought in front of the sultan she speaks in a language which was possibly latin and latin or old french and the words were translated and she tells the sultan crying that my daughter was kidnapped from our camp and uh, i need to recover her so sultan sends his, his agents having been moved emotionally uh, he cried when he heard her appeal he cried mm. uh, and this is by the way reported by the sultan's personal biographer bahaudin bachdadu was also a sheikh He wrote this biography on Nawadir Sultania, and in this book he documents this story. He's an eyewitness. So agents come back with the girl. Uh, some time later, they found the girl in the slave market. She was being sold by the kidnappers. Uh, the girl was reunited with the mother. The mother fell on the floor, started throwing sand on her face out of happiness, and everyone was moved by that. Now that act of kindness will live on until the day of judgment. Sultan Salahuddin al-Ayyubi was special not because necessarily he conquered al-Quds for the Muslims okay there are many more generals in the history of Islam who did greater things possibly mm. you know I mean I mean I can't say anything and, and think than, about what yeah. that act of kindness mm. did for that family yes. for the rest of their life maybe yes. they passed that story down for generations that you you're alive today or you're part of this family today because mm. of a kindness Absolutely. that a man showed us how People many years ago people told stories of sultan salahuddin yeah. al-ayubi uh, in europe mm. when he was alive and after he had died mm. uh, salahuddin became uh, a, a, a good muslim or a good infidel in europe i mean he couldn't be he couldn't be in paradise he couldn't mm. be fully, fully acceptable for the europeans because of the catholic church and the propaganda against islam in europe at the time but he became a good infidel okay mm. known as a good infidel in because of his chivalry his his principles likewise we have another act of kindness umar bin khattab radhiyallahu an walking the streets of medina and patrolling and seeing whether people are in good condition and there was a famine going on and he found a woman with kids and he helped the woman uh, when the woman saw him he asked the woman 
what is going on? And she said, my kids are hungry and I will take Omar by the forelock on the day of judgment. Not knowing that she's actually speaking to Omar, the, the caliph, the ruler of the Muslims. And Omar said to her, how does Omar know what's going on with you? She said, he's our ruler. He, he should know our, our condition. Omar runs back to Medina, brings food on his own show. I mean, he had a servant with him. He didn't let him carry that because he said, it's my burden. I'll carry it on the day of judgment. So I carry it today. So he goes back, cooks the food for children himself to an extent that his servant reports, who is the reporter of this incident, that when he was blowing into the fire, smoke was emerging from his beard, from the Allah mm. and he cooked the food and gave it to the children. And then he waited for them to have their fill and they started to play happily and then he departed from the family. Before he departed from the family, the woman said, you should be our ruler, not Omar. <laughs> And then he smiled and he said, when you see Omar, speak kindly with him. Don't be, don't be harsh. I didn't tell her that yeah. I am Omar bin Khattab, yeah. the famous Omar bin Khattab, the one you've been yeah. condemning yes. so far. So these acts of kindness, so I believe, are the, the, the cream of our civilization. You know, that's your tadabbar. Hmm. You know, the, the Orientalist hmm. has the opposite. Hmm. Hmm. The, the criticism of Salahuddin Ayyubi is that he was too tolerant. Mm. They literally say the only mistake of Salahuddin Ayyubi is that he is too tolerant, too kind basically. Yeah, he, he forgave so then the crusaders could keep coming Ka- back. He would allow Karen, and Karen Armstrong, yeah. Yeah. Karen Armstrong in her book The Holy War, which she has written on the Crusades, she, she states that he was, he was merciful to a fault. Mm. Yes. He was, you know, his mercy was one of his weaknesses, allegedly, yes. according to some people. They Absolutely. Said, they said that yeah. there would be... Because uh, they didn't like, get the meta-narrative. Yeah. They didn't Prison, get the meta-narrative. Pr- prisoners of war who were just fighting him yeah. would ask for amnesty. Yeah. He would say, okay, but you need to uh, take an oath that you're not going to battle anymore. Yes. They would take the oath, then so they no. would go back, regroup and pike and they come back break and fight yes. again. They would constantly break and, it. And yeah. the king did that himself, Guy de Lusignan. Yeah. The, the king of Jerusalem, who was yeah. caught in the Battle of Hittin in 1187, yes. uh, Sultan Saladin Ayyubi, uh, you know, let him go. He gave him respite and took an oath, but he came back to fight the Muslims and caused a lot of problems. Mm. So, exactly. But my, my extraction, let's say, of, uh, of my tadabbar of the history is that acts of kindness will always live. And, and, and I'm, I am not extending this... Uh, uh, this, uh, how can I put it? Um, just to uh, the dunya even. <laughs> no, no, just to the Muslim community. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm, these acts can be found in other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor, a very moral man in many ways. Uh, of course, he had other problems. Uh, he was a stoic philosopher, okay? Mm-hmm. And he had some good principles, very Islamic principles, by the way, because those principles can be found within Islam. I mean, I, I believe anything moral, Anything moral achieved by any civilization or any philosopher or any thinker uh, can be easily found in Islam. Because Islam is from Allah. It's so comprehensive as a system. Uh, uh, one human being cannot possibly come up with Islam or the Quran for that matter. I, I don't believe that's possible. Anyone who studies Islam and the Quran carefully uh, with an open mind will come to realize that this book could not have been put together by one human being. It is impossible, right? Even a group of human beings, mm-hmm. right? It is definitely divine because of the principles it imparts. So we find a collection of moral uh, uh, teachings, moral principles in Islam, in the prophetic tradition, 
uh, that was achieved possibly by other people in the past. So Marcus Aurelius was one of those people who had some uh, very moral principles. For example, there was a rebellion against him and a list was presented to him. He, he didn't read the list, he ripped it apart and he, he threw it away in case he ends up killing an innocent person, in case he ends up punishing someone who doesn't deserve punishment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he had this concept of marua. Mm -hmm. In Islam, we, we call it courtesy. Like in the Arabic language, we have this concept Marua, when out of courtesy, you avoid certain people, you look, mm. look you know, uh, basically you, um, uh, how can I put it, you know, you don't really um, punish them for some, something they have done because of some, some favors they might have done to you mm -hmm. in the past, right? So Marcus Aurelius's wife was cheating on him mm. and he found out mm. and uh, the advice was given to him that you should kill her, mm. you know, you're the emperor and she's your wife. She's not doing what she's supposed to be doing. And he said, no, her father was very kind to me. Mm -hmm. Her mm. father, so for her father, I will let her go. Mm. So he had these principles, even though he was a Roman emperor, Romans were brutal, so, but he was an exception. Why he stands out from all the Roman emperors mm -hmm. put together uh, is because of his, his moral deeds, his certain moral principles. So a secular historian looking at that mm. might criticize that, mm. might say that, that's a weakness as a leader yeah, in possibly. terms of capitulating mm. to your own moral ethics and mm. so on and so forth, instead of doing what's pragmatically correct mm. at the time and what's most pragmatically effective. Mm. And subhanAllah, it seems like when you're telling me this, it seems mm. like you can actually extract the truths and the lessons mm. from history, if you just even study history in general, mm. if you have an Islamic lens on. Hmm. then you'll know, okay, yeah, this was a good behavior. Yes. This is something Absolutely. that is praiseworthy. This yes. is not something that's praiseworthy. Yes. And it helps you actually uh, categorize things as this is what we can take with us. This is something we can leave behind. Absolutely, absolutely. And we, 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 are, we, do, we do justice with people and civilizations and we praise uh, uh, achievements uh, where they are moral, where they help humanity where people have uh, done great things in the past. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of certain people. Uh, for example, uh, one, of the, one of those people is uh, uh, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a British MP in the 18th century and he fought very hard against uh, slave trade. He, he, was, he was campaigning against uh, Atlantic slave trade, which was very, very brutal. One of the worst types of slaveries in human history. Um, um, and um, he, fought very hard, hard against. It's almost a like proof for the fitra. Yes. Because yes. you see this, why would somebody have these inclinations and why does it universally today when we look back at it, like I'm not talking about these secular historians that yeah. are just gonna look at pragmatics, but general people, they will always see that as a good thing. Yeah. General public, you go cross-culturally, right. cross-nationally, it's, it's something that connects us, this fitra that lets us recognize, yeah, it resonates with Goodness, us. Goodness, yeah. Yeah, the truth recognizes, yeah, exactly. resonates. Hence my, hence my reading of history that an act of kindness will never die. People who have power, who have influence will be forgotten because they, they weren't really anything special, right? Uh, uh, but people who did the right thing, they were on the right side of history, um, they will be remembered, okay? And there are many examples of that, many, many examples of that. People who were on the right side of history, they, they survived, historically speaking. They are well known because of the act, acts of kindness, right? Mm -hmm. Others, many kings, many generals, many philosophers, many thinkers, many scientists, many, uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, they, they, they have been forgotten. They are just uh, basically 
academic footnotes mm. in, in the history of humanity. No one really cares we about We were talking it. about your spark yeah. before. Yeah. What was the spark that made you love history and go into Islamic history? And it was history itself, my ancestral history. Uh, mm. I looked at my ancestors and the history. My father used to always tell me stories. This is why it's so important mm. to talk to your children about your history. Mm. Talk to them about the success of the past. Talk to, talk to them about the great achievements of the past. Most importantly, moral values and other and akhlaq, things Where's like that. Where should your parents start from? Sorry? If, if tomorrow I'm, I'm listening to you right now, I'm a parent. Mm. Mm. My, for me, my kids mm. are like, you know, six, you know, yeah. four, like young. Mm. But mm. I still try and get as much as I can. Tell stories. From, from now. Tell well, the stories where, of the Prophet. Where would I start from? Where yeah. would I start? Uh, start from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Make mm. uh, one of the, the, the hadiths of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam uh, the subject matter of the discussion uh, on, like, let's say, dinner table or at breakfast, you're talking to them, and just read the hadith of the Prophet and explain, uh, and the hadith has to be on moral issues, for example, uh, an act of kindness, for example, smiling, okay, removing harmful things from the road, uh, helping orphans, uh, not harming animals unnecessarily, okay, not overburdening animals, things like that. I mean, these moral teachings of the Prophet taking care of widows, orphans, and the list goes on and on and on, right? Feeding the poor, the needy, and, and the list goes on. I mean, moving on to the lives of the, lives mm. of the Sahaba, talking about the Imams and their struggles, mm. what they went through. So generally introduce your children to your history. Start Talk with about, Seerah, though, you're saying. Seerah and moving forward from Seerah. Don't always stick to Seerah. I mean, sometimes people make mistakes that they always talk about the seed of the Prophet mm. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We need to take snippets uh, of... Varieties uh, then... Exactly. Mm. Talk about Shah Waliullah, talk mm. about Ibn Taymiyyah, talk about Imam Hanifa, Imam Shafi, uh, Sultan Salahuddin, yes. Ottomans, okay, they Because children like novel, yeah. right? If yeah. you just keep it always seerah, yeah. then it's not no longer novel anymore. Yeah. But if seerah is, okay, one week seerah, one week this, exactly. one week that, back to seerah, then Exa it's always new, it's always new. Absolutely. It's always something Absolutely. you can look towards. Yeah. Yeah. The second, and this is for both of you, actually, I'm curious because I know Dr. Sayed's traveled the world too. If a parent is thinking, okay, I can teach them from books, but mm. what's better than books mm. is actually going there. Mm. So on, in terms of like uh, doing like more like these historical trips you see around the world and things mm. like that, what would be maybe top three? Obviously, we know Mecca, Medina, number one, right? Uh, anyone's going to get to that conclusion very quickly, even spiritually. But beyond Mecca, Medina, mm. for, from the two of you, and mm. from your own experience too, what would you say would be a good place to start with with, with children uh, or even with youth mm. uh, to take as a family? So thinking about it from just multiple perspectives, like you know, the general family, can they go there? How easy is it to travel there? What can they uh, attain from that type of a trip? Mm. And why is it important to actually invest in doing historical trips? Okay, I, I would say the top destination, uh, if you happen to be in the UK, in Britain, is the British Museum. You find a lot of human history in that one place. Mm. So it will save you traveling to many different places to look at different civilizations. So the British Museum has brought together, um, and a lot of people condemn the British Museum for stealing mm. from humanity. Mm. Uh, they haven't stolen. I believe they have protected and preserved this heritage. Otherwise, it would have been in private collections lying around in the world, and it would have been uh, vandalized and stolen. Private collectors, uh, exactly. no one would ever see it. Now human beings can see it. People can go and actually take inspiration. So the British uh, Museum, definitely one of the places. Turkey is another des destination. There's I a lot of Turkey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of Muslim history with Roman history. Where Greek should they history. go in Turkey? Because even when I look at that, I see, okay, where do you start? Where do you do? Where okay. do you go? 
in Turkey, uh, Istanbul is very historically rich. You have uh, Roman history, the Byzantine history, you have the Islamic history there, you have uh, Ottoman monuments, you have, uh, for example, Hagia Sophia, which is one of the oldest uh, uh, churches in the world, or the, it was the largest standing structure in the world for over a thousand years, right? Mm -hmm. It was built in 532 CE, uh, and uh, it was the largest indoor standing structure in the world until the Blue Mosque was built uh, right next to it. Okay, so it is a fascinating um, monument to visit. Mm -hmm. um, it was built by Emperor Justinian mm -hmm. um, in the sixth century, actually before the Prophet was born, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that very building you see in Istanbul standing to this day was resurrected before the Prophet of Islam was born, okay? So Turkey, and then the Topkapi Palace has many good historical objects. Uh, with caution, when you look at uh, stuff belonging to the Sahaba mm. and the Prophet ﷺ and other prophets, take it with a huge fist of salt, not a pinch of salt. Okay, <laughs> with a fist of salt because some that of them, stuff I, I think we, I mean, we can understand they're like um, educated replicas. You know, to a certain degree. It's very difficult to even yeah. call them replicas, okay? Yeah. Um, let's say, I mean, the turban of uh, uh, Yusuf or Islam or oh, the, like, the yeah, bowl yeah. of Ibrahim Islam, yeah. staff of Moses. Come on, you know, yeah. you have to have Islam. Yeah. We, yes, we, yeah, we yeah, can't yes. just attribute yes, things. Yeah. So, so, apart from that, the Ottoman history is absolutely fascinating in that museum, mm -hmm. right? Uh, also, there are places like the Romeli Castle, mm -hmm. which was built by Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih, in four months, from April to August, mm. he built this castle uh, very, very rapidly, and it's there, it's, mm. it's in Istanbul, you can actually see it. Uh, and this castle was built, or this fortress, small fortress was built to uh, subdue or eventually conquer Constantinople. So Istanbul and Turkey, we and talked about even Tipu Sultan in, in, in India. Yeah, you if think you that's can, if, yeah. uh, if in mostly people probably Indian origin are probably going to be uh, visiting or, or, or visit Mughal, Mughal monuments in India and Pakistan. So okay. we have Bachai Mosque in Pakistan in Lahore, mm -hmm. a magnificent structure. We have some other um, monuments like the Rohtas Fort. Uh, it was built by Sher Shah Suri in uh, Pakistan, not very far from the capital Islamabad, about an hour and a half drive. And uh, there are other places in the Muslim world. I mean, there are many, What do you many think places. for Africa, for example? Because you've been to Africa. North Africa. Yeah, North Africa. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. there a particular place that you've heard of or you've been to? Libya. Okay. Libya is absolutely filled with history, uh, Roman history in particular. Mm. Uh, actually, one of the best uh, preserved Roman sites in the world after Rome itself is in Libya. Awesome. Is the city of Leptis, Leptis Magna. Oh. In Arabic, it's called Labda. I've been there. I've seen it. Yeah. I don't know what happened to it after the war. Unfortunately, it might have been decimated. Syria is absolutely amazing. It's mind-blowing. Oh. Uh, Jordan, uh, there is so much Muslim history. You know, in Jordan, we have Petra. Uh, in Jordan, we have, um, uh, you know, the city of Jirash, very close to Amman. In Syria, we have the, the Umayyad Mosque, one of the oldest standing mosques in the world today. Okay, mm. The original structure is still very much standing. Mm. You will still see Greek written on the walls. It was uh, a Greek temple. And uh, it was a temple of Jupiter, sorry, uh, during the Roman period. So the building itself is Roman. It's on the Roman period. It's very old, right? Uh, so it was the temple of Jupiter. Then it became the church of St. Saint, Saint John. And afterwards, after the Umayyads took it, it became the Umayyad Mosque, right? And, yes. and that itself has a huge history 
which I cannot possibly so tell you. So instead of just collecting and saving money to go to take the family to Hawaii, try and maybe. <laughs> I you know, I would strongly recommend that do these kind of trips. Your children will be fascinated. They will mm. be inspired. Will they for be life. more? Will, do you think they'll be more happier going to Hawaii though, or do you think they'll be more happier doing these? Islamic I, I wouldn't like I wouldn't deprive children yeah. <laughs> of, of Hawaii or a trip to Hawaii. <laughs> but at the same time, if you want to take them to Hawaii... But what about long-term happiness? Uh, I would say, I mean, if you teach them history, it's going to help them in life and they will take inspiration and they will, their identity, their attachment to Islam and the Muslim civilization will be strengthened and they will feel, um, um, they will feel as if they are part of a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. They are part of a greater family, a greater heritage, a greater legacy, right? And and you will feel proud of it. Though your children will teach their children. So it is an unbroken cycle. That's one thing. Also, I would like to advise the Muslims living in the West, in particular Canada, Australia, in the US, to build Islamic museums. Even if they, I mean, we have thousands of mosques. Each mosque easily costs somewhere around two, three million dollars, right? Mm. Spend that money and build a museum also where you put Islamic heritage items, uh, objects from the Muslim world, Quran manuscripts, Hadith manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts, centuries old, coins mm. from the Muslim civilization like Umayyad coins, Abbasid coins. You're touching uh, on my last question. Yeah. That, this is my last question mm. is that we talked about, you know, uh, creating an environment at home where, you know, children and yourself especially. Sometimes it's good to use children uh, because it motivates us to do things that we won't even do for ourselves. Yeah. So learning about history to teach your children, mm. sometimes you think you're benefiting them, but you're actually benefiting yourself the yeah. more, right? Yeah. So it's good that we talked about this and starting that as a practice because that can unlock meaning and that can unlock that psycho-spiritual state mm. where we think, why are we not getting khushu in certain things mm. in learning or in our salah or in our mm. history? Maybe it's because we haven't invested time into yes. that, right? We haven't tapped into that treasure that's waiting yes. for us. Mm. So getting into those, you know, weekly maybe things of learning something and keeping it novel mm. is very important for mm. ourselves and our children. Yes. Then we talked about, okay, going on, maybe investing on some of these trips. And mm. it doesn't have to be across the world. You mm. just said the British Museum, there's museums here too mm. in Canada that people can go to, mm. to start just unlocking some of these lessons that we can learn and unlocking kind of the spiritual state we should have when mm. we look back and see, okay, where was the real success mm. in this situation? Mm. And even kindness and seeing these you know, qualities in people being ways of us unlocking, you know, ways of seeing, okay, kindness, yeah, we always tell people to be kind, but actually seeing the impact yeah. and it living throughout history that till today mm. in you know, Edmonton, we're talking about Sarhadina Yubi's kindness. Mm. That's that's that in and of itself should be a sign of exactly, showing us exactly. that this is such it an amazing die. Yeah, uh, characteristic. Die. And, and I believe the Muslim civilization as a phenomenon, mm. itself was an act of kindness. It was a manifestation of Allah's promise in the Quran, mm. O Muhammad, we sent you not except mm. as a mercy for the worlds. And the Islamic civilization was one of the manifestations of that very promise of Allah. Mm. Allah made this civilization happen, mm. and through this civilization, the world took a lot of benefit. Okay, Muslim civilization directly impacted the making of the Western civilization. Mm. There is no Western civilization without the Muslim civilization. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's another discussion. So we, said, we yeah. said the exotic trips yeah. <laughs> to these... Yeah. Uh, in the and also, <laughs> I, I would like to advise Muslims to start protecting, preserving uh, their history by collecting it. Okay. This is my third question. Yeah. This is my third. So I'm, I'm working there that, you know, we've kind of gone through this narrative of 
you know, uh, learning, you know, through books and things like that, learning through visiting. Mm. The third question is exactly what you touched upon. Mm. Marshall, it just shows that we're both on the same road yeah. uh, thought right now. Mm. It, it, it's, it's to understand, like we were talking about before, with an Islamic perspective, mm. objects have a new life. Yes. Right? So, like, for example, with an Islamic perspective, I have a sajada, but if that sajada belonged to my grandfather, mm. and I even just know that my grandfather made sajda on that mm. sajada, mm. I will make, I'll have more khushu because I now know I'm connected to a tradition of worshiping Allah subhanahu wa that every time the family of this, mm. you know, tribe, like, you know, touched the ground with their forehead, mm. they kept that special. Allah they made Allah. that a special moment Agreed. that they preserved, right? Absolutely. So objects, mm. right? A lot of people think, okay, materialism and things like that in a negative light. This is mm. actually now breathing life back into materialism mm. in a way that it's never been seen before in the sense that you're giving it mm. that connection to Islam. Mm. And mm. now every time you see, for example, that coin you have, yeah. We were talking about this before. You mm. touch that coin, mm. you feel that maybe the Sahaba touched the same coin. Yeah. That can lift up your iman. That's right. I mean, if you touch that coin and you have that connection, or, or the person, or the person striking the coin. Yes. Let's say in the city of Wasit, mm -hmm. or in the city of Damascus, must have seen the Sahaba walking around. Mm. Yes. And now think about think, this: you touch yeah. that coin. Yeah. Do you think your next thought is going to be a sin? No. Your I'm next sure. thought is probably going to be, you know what, the Sahaba. What we're great about the Sahaba connection right. to Quran. You know, let me read some Quran. Absolutely. Right? So Absolutely. having these at home, having these objects, having some sort of connection can be a good reminder. Yes. And, with the right and, perspective. And, and, and I advise all Muslim parents to encourage their children to start collecting Islamic objects. Mm. Okay? Uh, whatever is affordable to people. Mm. I mean, there are some people richer than others. Mm -hmm. They have more financial ability. So buy Islamic coins. They are easily available online. They are sold on eBay. Right, by Islamic manuscripts. Get involved, okay? Uh, I can give you examples uh, of other people from other civilizations. They don't leave anything from the history. If, if they get clubs, the, if, clubs where we book, celebrate book this. reading clubs, yes. manuscript reading clubs, right? Uh, do seminars on manuscripts. Let's mm -hmm. say we have a manuscript. What is it about? Mm -hmm. Who wrote it? When was it written? What was the purpose of writing it? Mm -hmm. What script was used? What paper is used? What type of ink is used? Okay, how was it burnt? Why is it damaged? Why does it have worm damage? All of these things are absolutely mind-blowing. Why are we so reluctant to study our history? Why are we so blind to it? Okay, Do you why have some exciting stories of tracking down Islamic objects? Yes. Because I, someone told I have, me that I have you, Indiana you, Jones yeah, that's <laughs> stories. I heard that. I heard yeah. you were like Indiana non Jones. Yeah, <laughs> I have a different kind of hat. It's, it's that Pashtun parkour. You know? So I put that hat on and I go uh, hunting uh, for manuscripts and coins yeah. and stuff like that. So do you have any exciting, uh, amazing uh, stories? Yeah. Amazing, absolutely mind blowing stories. Yeah. Like once I found a manuscript uh, on a pile of. Uh, you know, there was a there was a bookseller, and uh, I asked him, "Do you have any old books?" And he put a pile in front of me, right? Um, and um, I found this manuscript, a complete manuscript, uh, 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 basically falling apart. Uh, you know, it wasn't one block anymore; pages were all uh, mixed up, so it was tied with a with a thread. So I looked at it, and it was a very important manuscript. It was written in the 19th century. Uh, it is uh, the poetry of uh, Sheikh Saadi, very famous Persian uh, intellectual par excellence, who had written two texts, texts in Persian titled Gulistan and Bostan. Mm. This is wisdom, wisdom poetry. These are 
hikayat. Hikayat means a story. He's telling stories with moral uh, morals at the end. So to teach. So all youngsters, most youngsters in the Indian subcontinent and in Persia would go through these texts to become moral people, right? Mm -hmm. Gulistan and Bostan. So I found the manuscript of Bostan, one of the mm -hmm. books, uh, and it was patronized by uh, a governor working for Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So uh, this is a Hindu governor. Mm. His name is Divan Dolat Singh. Uh, okay, he was the governor of the current territory in Pakistan called the Dera Jat. Mm. Uh, working for Maharaja Ranjit Singh, who was ruling from Lahore. Being a Hindu, he wanted someone to transcribe this manuscript for him, to take inspiration from some of these uh, Islamic works. So as a Hindu, he had paid uh, a scribe from Lahore, uh, Muhammad Atta, his name was. And I found all these details in the, in the manuscript wow. and I, I bought it for like a thousand rupees, which is like how many dollars is that? Uh, maybe $10 or less than $10, yeah. 10 Canadian dollars. Mm. I have stories like that. And, and as far as I was concerned, Allah sent me there to pick it up, to preserve it, mm. okay? It's still part of the Muslim history. It shows how Hindus and Sikhs were inspired by Muslim works uh, authored in Persia and later on disseminated within India. This is one of the stories. I have other stories where I found coins, Islamic coins, and, uh, and managed to preserve them for posterity. So I see my life, um, if, one of the, uh, if, I was, if I was to say that if I have achieved something in my life that I can say uh, I'm happy with, it's my library and it's my collection of uh, such objects. So I have many important manuscripts in my library. Been, uh, we have inherited a lot of them from our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Some others I bought from auctions in London um, and in different places. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Inshallah, we're going to have to do a part two of the podcast where we go through your collection. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and each and every single object has yeah. a history behind it yes. that will fascinate people. Blow we people we need to do that, inshallah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I, I look forward to that, inshallah. Yeah. Another very quick story I want to tell is, is the acquisition of one of the earliest Islamic coins in history. Yeah. Okay, the first properly Islamic coin was minted in 77, the year 77 Hijri, by Abdul Malik bin Marwan, who was an Umayyad Caliph. Yeah. And prior to that, the Muslims were using uh, the Byzantine and the Persian model. Uh, they were using uh, the Byzantine and the Persian currency with Islamic formulas transcribed mm. on them because for pragmatic reasons, uh, they didn't change the, the economic uh, mm. status or uh, you know, economic conditions of the lands they conquered. So they kept the same currency. Okay, because any new currency wouldn't be acceptable in the marketplaces. Okay? The, the economy would simply collapse, yeah. Yeah. right? So they kept the, the old currency. But 50 years later, after the Prophet um, they basically decided to reform coinage and start issuing properly Islamic or fully Islamic coinage. And Abdul Malik bin Marwan was one of the first people to do that. And uh, the first coin ever minted in Islam, in the history of Islam, the first properly Islamic coin was minted in 77 uh, with Islamic formulas transcribed on it. Wow. And uh, I managed to buy um, the, the one after 77, which is the year 78. Wow. 77 is simply not affordable. Uh, that coin, that gold dinar mm -hmm. uh, can easily cost you easily half a million dollars, half oh, a million wow. US dollars. It has been sold in auctions, collectors buy 
uh, that kind of stuff. The only affordable uh, item in the line is the next year, which is 78, yes. uh, which is still in, uh, comes in thousands of dollars. Um, I managed to get it for a very reasonable price from, mm. from a seller, and that's one of my gems, mm. okay? And how I acquired it is another story altogether. Let's, let's <laughs> leave that story for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I have many Indiana Jones type yeah, of stories, yeah. you know, we're going yeah. on a mission, yeah. protecting, to protecting history and trying to save Le- it. Leaving on a helicopter. Yeah, <laughs> going, going in the... With a, with a, with a whip. <laughs> yeah, you find yourself in this, like, temple structure and there's booby traps everywhere. <laughs> to solve a puzzle. Yeah. 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 Ancient mind yeah. puzzle. Yeah. In a different way, my stories are very similar to that. Okay, yeah. because... Uh, uh, I, I don't only believe in teaching theory, I believe in uh, field work. Mm. I believe in field work. Actually go and feel history, find it, mm. preserve it. They, there's nothing like it. I, I cannot describe the happiness, the happiness I, I experience when I find a manuscript and I manage to preserve it. Mm. Um, I have managed to uh, basically, I mean, by the grace of Allah, purely by the blessings of Allah, I'm, I'm not even deserving of this honor. Uh, but I found manuscripts worm-eaten, completely falling apart, mm. uh, you know, and neglected. Mm. And we managed to uh, preserve them, uh, repair them, get them rebound. And now if you look at those manuscripts, you think, subhanAllah, these are, uh, they'll probably survive for another few centuries, inshallah. You know, so, this brings us full circle, I guess, now. Mm. Because now we're coming back to that aspect that you just talked about, happiness. Mm. And that, you know, subhanAllah, we talked about identity and how mm. history can help us reconnect and revitalize our identity mm. and have a part of our identity that's that's strong, that can live on, that can go from generation to generation, developing strong, stronger and stronger Muslims, but also one that can make us happier and happier. Mm. I mean, the more history we have to connect to, the more meaning we have behind the things that we have in our daily lives, mm. the way we view things, and mm. the more uh, fulfilling Mm. Those things can now go into the future. We talked about, you know, uh, how this can emancipate us from learning about history. Mm. Imagine this. It's so important. Mm. We think we sometimes lose the, the the gems and jewels there because, you know, we're so fixated on what's right in front of us. Yes. Right. And so looking back, subhanAllah, we can learn about how we can emancipate ourselves and benefit our even daily lives. Mm. A lot of us, we, we're unhappy with things. Mm. Everyone's unhappy with something, mm. you know, in their daily lives. And, and really, I think from listening to you and, and Dr. Saeed in our conversation before, just simple, like, just take a little bit of time to just touch the past and you'll be surprised. And the joy I see on your face in your videos and when you are talking about Islamic history or history in general too, when, we, when you're seeing it from an Islamic lens, it can be so powerful in your life. Yes. It can really change your life completely. Mm. Like you can go from a person who's not very happy mm. on a daily basis mm. and just by touching the blessing Allah SWT created for us. Because Allah SWT could have created us like, you know, almost like ex nihilo in the sense that like, okay, there's no history that we have. Yes. We, just, we just start. That's but right. Allah SWT created us with a history. Mm. We mm. should really take that, that as benefit. And touch that blessing that we have That's that right. grows with us, alhamdulillah. And then Starting like, with the creation of Adam, alayhi salam, Allah mm. ta'ala specifically mm. let us know what that history was. We wouldn't have known. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, we talk absolutely. about some very good things about, you know, implementing this on our daily lives. Just weekly lessons or not even lessons, just even five minutes, ten minutes here or there. But mm. just start something systematic that can grow mm. with mm. families and, mm. and with yourself. Mm. Even if you don't have children or you're not mm. married. And then beyond that, investing 
because anything you want to maximize value from, mm. you need to invest in it. That's right. Right. If I want to start working out, I can only get so far mm. until I start buying equipment. Mm. Then I can go further, right? Or uh, spending money on nutrition. And then the last thing was about, you know, uh, tapping into something that I think we've lost completely. Yes. And that is giving meaning back to the objects around us, mm. uh, searching for those objects that mm. can remind us of mm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, mm. that can remind us mm. of the Sahaba, our beautiful history, Islamic history, mm. and remind us of lessons that we can learn. So it, mm. even if you have a piece of history like mm. this telescope, mm. right? Uh, it can remind us of the blessings Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us yes. throughout history. Yes. Look, Allah subhanahu gave technology to people such a long time ago, yes. and we have technology now. How has humanity showed thanks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exactly. for years and years and centuries and millennia of technology Absolutely. and products Absolutely. that Allah subhanahu gave us the materials for, the brains for, the opportunity for, the environment for, and yet we don't even think about even thinking uh, for these things. It's sad that the Muslim community is very negligent towards, generally speaking, mm. generally speaking is very negligent towards this history. I've, I've said this many times that we were the most bookly people in the world mm. and now we have become the most bookless people. And that's why I admire the Jewish people and the Sikh people mm. in particular very much because they are very focused on preserving their history. Mm. The Jewish people are very focused on preserving their history. In fact, some of the Jewish collectors are protecting Muslim history. I mean, one of the greatest Islamic manuscript collections in the world is the Daud Khalili collection. Mm. Daud Khalili is an Iranian. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's, 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 he's from the Jewish background. He's Iranian, right? Uh, and he has done a huge favor to the Muslim community. We must thank him for that, mm. okay? Um, putting aside all our prejudices and all the recent events that have been going on in the Middle East and all that, uh, but if someone's done something virtuous, we have to praise it, mm -hmm. right? Like Rasulullah in the Battle of Uhud, one of the Jewish uh, uh, fighters came, Mukhairik, mm. and he fought in the battle and he died. And the Prophet said he is the best of the Jewish people, mm. Mukhairik, because he fulfilled his pledge his ahad with the Prophet, the agreement the Jewish people had made with the Prophet mm. when he moved to the Medina that, that when we are attacked, we will, we will defend ourselves collectively. Yes. The Jewish people and the Muslims will come together and protect both yes. communities, right? Mukhairik was one of the exceptions who came out to defend the Prophet because of that agreement. Mm. And the Prophet said, so likewise, when we see virtue, we have to praise it. Daud Khalili has done a favor to the Muslim community. He has protected, he has collected all these Islamic manuscripts from, from around the world mm. and uh, they are part of his collection. The Sikh people are protecting the history. I mean, there is, if I'm not mistaken, there's a museum in Vancouver mm -hmm. where the Sikh people have yeah. collected the history. And, and also, to, to be fair with the Muslim community, in Australia, we have a, we have a museum called the Islamic Museum of Australia. Mm. And that really fascinated me. I was really inspired by that idea. I think on, 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 a, on the final note, let's say, is mm. that let's work towards some, something like that. Yes. To, to protect our history, to teach people, our youngsters about it. Mm. We need to build institutions where it is done. Mm. Uh, whether it's done uh, through objects, through tours and trips, mm. or through, let's say, museums and visiting private collections. Mm. We have to now start looking at this. Otherwise, we are losing a generation. You know, personal transformation, I've said this before, can happen through information and inspiration coming together. Mm. And alhamdulillah, we got that from you, Dr. Sayyid, and, and this whole time you've been here with us. But what sometimes 
stop someone from initiating that transfer transformation mm. is a barrier mm. usually they have a barrier mm. they need to tear that barrier down mm. then that information inspiration can launch them forward mm. Absolutely. so as a concluding thought maybe from yourself and then inshallah Dr. Sayyid can conclude for us is what if you look at history today people like to say this is my history this is this is the you know Pakistani Indian history. Mm. So, for example, a Arab youth growing up today mm. might not want to, or even be inclined to learn about Pakistani history mm. or our Indian history, mm. vice versa. Or African history is mm. very neglected. Mm. Or our Islamic history in Africa, mm. or the Islamic history in China, mm. right? Mm. Very neglected because mm. we seem to on, we almost take our biases yeah. into our own learning. Yes. So, could you maybe give us as a concluding point, inshallah, just some ways of Breaking down that because I don't see that with you. You you look into British history. You look into Absolutely. you talk about Professor Arnold yeah. and his book about preaching Islam. Yeah. So you're not biased. I can see that you're not mm. biased. You'll touch everything. If you inshallah when you go to Africa soon uh, on your next trip, you're you're probably going to touch something there. Yes. So how can we as you know the ummah let go of this stuff and like you know get more clarity and start this uh, initial action of transformation learning our history the more we preserve the the higher position we have in in the scheme uh, we can we can speak with authority uh, for example not only pres preserving and protecting our own history but protecting uh, the history of humanity we can become the guardians generally speaking of human history and in that we will definitely manage to uh, preserve our own history. If we aim high, we will achieve high. If we aim low, naturally we will achieve low because we will think low, right? We need to think high. We need to start thinking about human history uh, as, as uh, something that needs to be protected. And in my collection, I have pieces from British history, for example. I have some amazing stuff uh, uh, from belonging to the British heritage, right? Mm. Um, I have some manuscripts, I have some uh, old books, printed books, um, some rare items, okay, some coins, let's say. Okay, I don't, I don't think like, okay, this is not part of my civilization. Mm. No, it is part of my civilization. Mm. Okay, it is part of, it, it is Adam. my duty. Exactly. All Banu Adam. Kullukum min Adam wa Adam min Turab. You know, we are all the children of Adam and this is a joint achievement. So once we start to look sympathetically mm. towards other histories, which is thinking big, mm. right? Naturally, we'll start to look more sympathetically towards our own history, mm. okay? So if we completely focus on our own history mm -hmm. and neglect other histories, uh, it, it might, we might achieve little within our own history. But I believe if you, if you, if you want to eat an elephant, yeah. uh, and you go looking for one, you'll definitely find a goat. <laughs> back to the lake analogy, cast a wide net. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, these little exactly. Thank you. Up. Thank you. Very nicely put. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. absolutely. So we need to think bigger. We need to think big and, uh, and, and play our role as the guardians of human well-being. Allah has mm. given us that position. Allah has made us uh, a mercy for, for the world. We are the manifestation of Allah's prom promise. We just need to understand that. We need to know that. That when Allah says the Prophet ﷺ was not sent except as a mercy for the words, mm -hmm. how does that mercy manifest itself today? Mm -hmm. Through the Muslim Ummah, through the, mm -hmm. through the Muslim community. So we in Canada, in the US, in Australia, in Britain, in Germany, in France, wherever we are, despite all the, the hostility and Islamophobia, we have to keep going. We have to remain steadfast. We have to explain, we have to do da'wah, we have to uh, mm. tell people about Islam, the Muslim civilization, and our sympathy for others, 
Okay, and how do we demonstrate that by even start talking about other history? Mm. Okay, so it's it's very important for us to be involved in history. I believe it's one of the most neglected areas in the Muslim Ummah, and we need to start waking up to it. So, in conclusion, in you, conclusion, you, you, wake up, yeah, brothers and sisters, wake up and start protecting, start educating yourselves about your own history and historical objects, and you will see a difference. You can't, like you know, you can't learn everything, yeah. but Everybody can learn something. Uh, exactly. Right? Mm. And that something can change you forever. That's right. So, inshallah, with that, Dr. Saeed, if you want to... You know, in terms of conclude. the impediments, you know, the narrowness comes from within the smallness within your own self, mm. your own ego. And if we look at, for example, the sta statement of Rubai ibn Amr mm. to Rostam, it's like, mm. we're here mm. to deliver you from the narrowness mm. of this dunya, your way, your religion, to the vastness of Islam. Yes. Right? So Islam takes you to the vastness. Even with history, we don't restrict ourselves because a person is non-Muslim not to learn their history. Mm, mm, mm. We don't restrict ourselves, uh, you know, as the Shaykh mentioned before, that, you know, wisdom, knowledge is a lost property of the believer. Mm. We don't restrict ourselves from harvesting that yes. for our benefit because for the Muslim, we are trying to derive benefit from everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to leave benefit behind. See, that's the, again, the narrowness of a person who only thinks for themselves doesn't want to leave anything behind. And we want to leave treasures behind. We want to leave something that will benefit humanity. And preserving history is part of that. That's right. If you don't preserve it, you can't leave it behind. Yes, that's good. And then that continues on the chain of history. And then maybe we can actually learn those lessons. And we are depriving ourselves with that narrowness. You know, nowadays, for example, uh, you see this online, and I've seen like you know, uh, you know, conversations in real life, where, for example, people will talk about how we should parent our children. Mm. You know, like new parent, new parents' books, right? How to, how to uh, raise your children? What's the most effective way? How do you potty train kids? How should you feed kids? Every little thing, like new, this PhD, this, 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 mm. this, this, this. Mm. And they're lost. I see new parents all the time in my practice. We're so lost. We don't know what to do. And I said to them, what advice did you get um, from your parents mm. and your grandparents on how to parent? Mm. So I really didn't talk to them about it. So, uh, Actually, it's the opposite. I don't want my parents to tell me how to raise my kids. Wow. You know, nowadays it's... Mm. But subhanAllah, that tradition... Mm. That's just a micro example mm. of how just historically within your own family mm. you cut yourself off and you reap the consequences. Because you ask your own parent, okay, give me some tips. You ask your grandparents, give me some, your uncles and your aunties. That's historical preservation. Yeah. Because they might be able to tell you things that a book might, will, will never be able to tell you. Yeah. In our family, we're susceptible to this. That's why we feed our children this. Mm. You know what I mean? Our family, this is how, you know, you're, you're, uh, we, we, we go to sleep, we're sensitive to light or we're, you know what I mean? There's all this nuance or as you know, you termed it meta-narrative mm. that we don't get. We deprived ourselves because even from our own familial historical concept, mm. we left behind. Mm. Oh, did you know that you came? Imagine how you mm. said you get like meaning and things. Did you know you came from like a history that is so noble? Mm. Like this is what your forefather achieved. Yes. Mm. Your grandparents achieved. And then would that not inspire you if 
generations ago, they achieved this, mm. then why can't I do something? Yes. Why can't I be a carrier of this, exactly. of this ilm, this knowledge, this, uh, this courage, mm. you know, these values, mm. right? Yeah. Why can't I continue to mm. carry that? Mm. Right? That's very powerful. It, show, it showcases another barrier, is our ego to learning history. Because yes. we think history started with us. Mm. My history, yeah. I'm the be all end all. Mm. I already know everything I need to know. I, why mm. do I need to learn history? I mm. know everything already. Mm. I have these degrees, I have this uh, knowledge, I have these experiences. What am I going to get from history? Mm. It's an ego problem too. Mm. You know, the, this lack of you know, tapping into our history. And I think it's a humbling process because the more you learn about history, it humbles you. Because you learn about the most greatest, smartest, Powerful people. The world didn't start with your existence. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, and history itself is a creation of Allah. That's right. Mm. History itself. Yes. It's not just the things in history. Yes. History itself is a creation of Allah. It's one of the most powerful arguments in the Quran. Thirty mm. percent of the Quran is history. Yes. Thirty mm. percent of the final message to humanity from the Creator is history. Yes. So how can we possibly neglect it? You know, mm-hmm. so I'm just reminding now of yeah. the ayah yeah. in the Quran. Because yeah. they forgot Allah. Yeah. So Allah caused them to forget themselves. Absolutely. And we have done that. We have yes. lost our identity yes. by forgetting mm-hmm. about Islamic history. That's right. The creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us mm-hmm. the the blessings and history that we have mm-hmm. that we can learn from and we can develop ourselves from. SubhanAllah. Mm-hmm. So to our viewers, a pretty intense discussion. Absolutely. <laughs> in the history meaning of life, our future, our children, uh, all of these things are hanging in the balance and we can only move forward uh, towards light if we do it in the proper manner, the way that we have been guided to. So um, I'm just gonna say our, we have a a tagline for our outro. I'm gonna say it, but then I'm gonna give you, inshallah, I'm gonna request from you, uh, Sheikh, if you can uh, basically give us our outro tagline. Essentially, at the end of every podca- podcast, we say, we live by the haq, we die by the haq, and just when you think life is stuck, tune into life haq. Okay. So We live by the haq, we die by the haq, and just as life... Just when you think life is stuck... Just when you think life is stuck, we... Tune into life hub. We tune into <laughs> life hub. <laughs> yeah, tune into we life. tune into life. I've just destroyed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> take two, take two. Right? We live by the huck, we die by the huck, and when we uh, just when you think just life when we think the, the life, life is, is stuck, stuck. we we tune into life huck. Assalamu alaikum everyone, Adnan Rashid here. I just want to request that every single one of you must subscribe to Life Huck. Uh, podcast YouTube channel. A lot of amazing content is going to come up. A series on Ottomans is already there. So watch this space and subscribe. Do not miss this opportunity to be exposed to amazing content on Islamic intellectual history and the history of Islamic dynasties and all of that. So Life Haq is your channel. Subscribe. Assalamu alaikum.